entering the Freedom Hut. Is the ghost of Karl Marx going to visit the New Hampshire primary tonight? Plus, finally tackling sanctuary cities. Attorney General Barr has them in his sights. Roger Stone faces up to nine years in federal prison. And a Bloomberg tape that could make things a little bit harder for Mini Mike. Also, does Rudy have the goods? That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America, great. you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. We are at a crossroads in our democracy. We're at a key crossroads, and we cannot underestimate the power of hate. We cannot underestimate the power of that divisiveness and the centering and the vitriol and all of that. We cannot underestimate that, and that is why we need to nominate someone with a political revolution at their back, with decades of organizing, bringing us to this moment. Donald Trump. It's going to be a movement of Americans that defeat Donald Trump in rejection of hatred and embracing of love. And like workers of the world unite and power to the people and more slogans. Welcome to the Bucks Action Show, everybody. AOC, the most powerful Democrat in the country right now, more powerful than Nancy Pelosi, more powerful than any of these primary candidates because she is the future of the Democratic Party, and we all know it, right? We all, we all understand that. We get it. This is where the Democratic Party is heading. Now, perhaps they'll change if they do nominate Bernie Sanders tonight in New Hampshire. The Granite State, as all the pundits are going to be saying. I'm doing it now, too, right? The Granite State. Who even really knows why it's called that? I know a lot of you listening do, but none of the people on TV, none of the stuffed, uh, stuffed shirt, oh, look at me, I've learned so much about politics, and now I'm anchorman, Ron Burgundy. Uh, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see if a socialist can win in New Hampshire tonight. Uh, I won't know. When you listen to the show, I don't know what the results are. I do know that if there was a theme song for this contest, it would have to be No One Knows by one of my favorite bands, actually, Queens of the Stone Age, which is a, a, a name that is, I don't even know where that comes from, but that is the name of the band. I like Queens of the Stone Age a lot. And I will, because producer Mark is here and he's been a friendly fellow today, I will not try and sing for you the chorus of No One Knows from Queen. And he's nodding his head in gratitude for Queens of the Stone Age. But that's true. No one knows. Nobody knows. No Democrat knows. Everyone's just sitting around saying, well, this is crazy. Biden, the front runner, has fallen away. Bernie is surging. Buttigieg seems to have had his moment and perhaps his moment has passed. We'll see. Klobuchar is hanging in there like, I can be your VP. Does Klobuchar sound like Hillary? Think on it. And then you have Warren, who still in the race, still thinks that she can stick it to the millionaires and the billionaires. Barring from Bernie Sanders, why vote for Warren over Sanders is really the question that I think she has difficulty with at this point. She's supposed to be more establishment, but she also comes with more baggage. Bernie Sanders, you could say a lot about Bernie. He has never pretended to be a Native American. 
He has never appropriated the culture of the Plains, uh, the Plains Native Americans, of the Algonquin, the Iroquois, the Comanche, the Cherokee, none of it. Bernie Sanders has always been Bernie Sanders, a really unreformed uh, communist sympathizer in many ways, but he is the guy who has the enthusiasm. If you're looking for somebody who has a political army to match up against Donald Trump's, it has to be Bernie Sanders. And I know this is going to be tough for us, but in this moment, keep in mind that the AOC speech that you heard there about like, we have a revolution and rejection of hate and an embrace of love. If you're a Democrat candidate right now and your version of a policy speech sounds a bit like a John Lennon song, imagine all the people, you know what I mean? If, if that's the way you're going right now, you're probably doing very well. Bernie Sanders' policies are just a bunch of things that he says that sound good until you think about it. They're things that you can propose that all of a sudden you'd say to yourself, well, hold on a minute. Uh, I, how, how is that going to work? I have questions, Bernie. And he doesn't have answers. And the moment that you push him for answers, he's just like, why, why do you hate poor people? Why are you in the pocket of the oligarchs? There's nothing really beyond that. You say, well, hold, wait, wait a second. We all agree. We all agree that we spend too much money as a country and that this is a problem and that it's in many ways an unseen drag on the wealth of particularly people who don't own assets, right? Because the stock market, you have the inflation of asset prices that's going on, all this liquidity being pumped into the market through QE. you got the federal government engaging in these financial engineering tactics that have never been done before. People wonder why the middle class feels like it's getting left behind, why the separation between not the 1% so much as the 0.01% and the rest of us is growing and growing all the time. Well, we're in uncharted territory here. Nobody's really done what this, what this country's Federal Reserve is doing right now. And the interest rates that have been so low for so long, that may shift and switch over time. And as it does, there'll be an increasingly large amount of the debt that, uh, well, an increasing large amount of our GDP is going to go to servicing interest on the debt, and that will crowd out other spending. And this is like boring econ speak, but we all know that that's where this is heading. And Bernie Sanders' answer, and AOC, and this comes from the modern monetary theorists, who are a group of people who effectively say openly, I mean, they'll try to nuance it a little bit and make it sound a little less scary, but just the government should spend whatever it wants to spend. The government can just make money, and there's really no downside as long as they manage inflation. What that fails to take into account, though, is that inflation can spiral out of the control of the central planners of an economy, and when that happens, you can, you can ruin a country. It's occurred in many other places. It's harder, it's slower... As I've been saying to you, socialism takes a while to ruin an economy. And this is why the story of Sweden is, in fact, a story of a country that was very industrious, hardworking and entrepreneurial and then became socialist in the mid middle of the 20th century or so and stayed socialist for a while and then realized we can't afford this. We can't keep doing this. We have stagnation and then embraced far more free market reforms, actually has a lower corporate tax rate than America. I mean, you or until Trump came along. You know, it takes a while to, to, to bleed out of the system the productivity of the past. This is what's going on in California. Governor Newsom, who is, who is actually crowing, I mean, he is bragging about management in his state, 
I, I saw for the first time in my adult life, the last time I was in California, on a crowded street in full view of other human beings, I saw a human being do something that I have never seen outside of a desperately poor third world country. I will not describe it on air. But I know you can say, oh, Buck, well, that's a one-off. But except everybody that I know keeps telling me they're seeing the same stuff going on. The way the human waste matter in the streets, the, the broken needles, the tent cities, the massive homelessness problem, flight from and the, the, the people. We have to remember, it's also hard to see the results of Democrat policies right away. It takes time. They say, oh, well, if you don't like it so much, flee. Oh, yeah. How do you flee California? Riddle me this, Gavin Newsom. How do you leave some of these Democrat nightmare governance situations, New York? Lose, we're losing a lot of people. Florida, I, look, I mean, at some point, I might have to move to Florida. The weather's lovely. We could just do stories every day on Florida Man. Some of you are familiar with this is a phenomenon. Producer Mark could finally achieve his dream of showing up every day wearing flip-flops. And then we could all go hang out at the beach afterwards. I mean, I, it's not so bad, right? I, I Sign me up. Florida sounds great. In California, one of the problems that you have is that the, the super rich because they're so worried about having pet therapists and solar panels on their roofs, they'll they'll deal with the really stupid governance problem. And the poor and illegal aliens, and we're going to talk about sanctuary cities and the attorney general, Barr, finally taking the fight to them, which he should do, and it's very, very encouraging. That's coming up later in the show. But the super rich in California and the dependent class, let's call them that, the dependent class, they like what's going on. Because they're draining from the productive middle, the mass of people who do their jobs, work hard. They're draining and draining from them over time. And they're fleeing. They're leaving for places like Nevada. They're leaving for places like Austin in Texas. High five, KLBJ, Texas in Austin. Uh, and they are they're doing this knowing that the policies that they bring with them, if they haven't learned their lessons, are just going to make these other places worse. But some of them can't leave. They can't leave because the they're underwater on a mortgage or they can't find the same job at the same at the same rate of pay that they're currently uh, currently in. Uh, and, and in some cases, it's getting increasingly hard for them to even sell their homes because the taxes are so high. So, you know, if you're someone who's stuck and you wouldn't be near really near the coast in this situation. But, you know, if you're stuck in a midsize family home in California, which I don't even know what the real estate values are there. But let's say you're in a half a million dollar home and. In California, obviously not in Santa Monica, but some other part of California, and you want to leave, well, the state tax rate is so high that it's hard to find a buyer for that home. And if you drop the price low enough, you know, now you're taking a big loss, perhaps, on what you've paid into the home over time. So, you know, Democrats, this, this is legalized theft is what I'm getting to. They're taking, they're taking, they're taking all the time. There are all these different ways that the socialist mindset is already chipping away at your freedom, at your finances, at your ability to provide for yourself and make your own decisions. And as they're doing that, they pretend that this is better for you somehow. And like we live in some free market, you know, some some free market paradise, some some Darwinian world where you know only the super rich have it have it good. Meanwhile, you've got actual rising wages, you've got an increase in a dramatic increase in people uh, people's household wealth year to year because of the tax cut. You have all these things that are going on that are positive economically, and they're coming along and saying, no, no, what we really need now is more socialism. 
And the moment you dig into this, you see that it's all it's all built. The foundation is built on sand. It's going to crumble. But all you need to do is pull the pull the AOC maneuver here. It's about a revolution and a rejection of hate and an embrace of love. And everyone goes, yeah. Really? A rejection of hate? Democrats uh, in office and in the media, I mean, I repeat myself, but Democrats in general, they're training those who are in the Democratic Party to hate not just Trump, but Trump supporters. There's actually a pretty funny moment in the um, most recent uh, most recent season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which I watched so that producer Mark and I have something in common because I don't know enough about baseball to have, you know, a bro to bro conversation about that yet. But I've watched a little bit of Curb Your Enthusiasm and Larry David. And this is funny. And obviously he's a huge liberal and he doesn't like Trump, but it is a funny concept. He realizes that if he just wants people to not hang out with him, that he doesn't want to waste time, waste time with. He just has to wear a MAGA hat, you know, make America great again. You wear that in in Beverly Hills in Santa Monica. You wear that in Los Angeles. And yeah, people don't want to be seen in public with you. It works. But then there's this this scene where he's in a car and a biker and, you know, he cuts a biker off or something. And, you know, they have a, a road rage kind of dispute and the biker is screaming profanity at him. And Larry David then puts on a MAGA hat. And the biker sees and he's like, all right, man, no worries. You know, it's fine. And next time, just be a little more careful. It totally changes his tone. It is funny. It is a funny sequence. And Trump retweeted it, <laughs> which is amazing, by the way. But, I mean, they're aware of this, right? I'm, I'm not shy about my beliefs or who I am, but I just don't want to deal with the hassle of wearing a, a MAGA hat around New York City. Although, increasingly, as we go into this election cycle, I mean, producer Mark will have to take out uh, a life insurance policy on me in addition to whatever I've already got. But... It would be an interesting experiment to just walk around some parts of New York City, especially as the election gets close, with a MAGA hat on. I just bring this up because Bernie bros are a very angry and vicious bunch when you challenge their beliefs in politics. You know, Antifa, Bernie support, you know, there's there's a bit of a crossover there, my friends. And the moment that you start to tell these people that their ideas are nuts, they get even crazier. So this... This premise that AOC is forwarding here, and I, look, I do believe this. She is the single, she is the single most, uh, you know, if, if you were picking a, a Democrat fantasy football team, AOC would be like your franchise QB at this point because she's the heart of the party. She's a one, she's a first-term congresswoman, but as we see, it does. you don't need any experience. You don't need any knowledge. She loves Milton, Milton Keynes. I know we say Keynesian, but I guess some, I've heard people say Keynes and Keynes, so depends it's like neil ferguson i hear everyone say nile but i actually the guys it's it's neil but these british names they make it intentionally tough so that you know only the fancy people get it right but yeah Mil milton Keynes, her favorite her favorite economist you don't have to know anything you don't have to have any, look at pete Buttigieg. you don't have, to have any experience inflate the experience you do have just mouth the slogans, rabble rouse, get the street fired up, get people angry and motivated. It is just Olinsky, my friends. It's community organizing with nothing behind it of intellectual worth. It's just, ah, we're angry. And the other people are the bad people. What else are Democrats going to do right now? We hate this really good economy. We hate this period of booming prosperity and relative peace that Donald Trump has delivered. Yeah, that's horrible. Well, AOC is here to tell you that it is horrible. That's that's her job, along with these other Democrats tonight in New Hampshire. And we'll dig some more into what they believe and what, what they're going to do tonight. 
You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. We used to say a long time, even before it got the way it is now, we all love our children so much we hope they never run for office. <laughs> because this is not for the faint of heart. All of you know that. It is not for the faint of heart. It's, it's difficult, more difficult now, especially uh, for women, because women are not. As I say to them, you're in the arena. Once you get into the arena, this is, this is, again, not for the faint of heart. Sunday morning, I know I just came from church. Mass, but nonetheless, I'll say this: when you're in the arena. You got to be ready to take a punch, and you got to be ready to throw a punch for the children. For the children, <laughs> I love that. It's a perfect example. What do I always tell you? What is one of Buck's maxims of of American politics? Never trust anybody who tells you that they're that what they're doing is for the children. Right? There are a few of them. That's one of them. Always leave room for crazy. Better get ready for that, especially if Bernie wins the nomination. And never trust anybody who tells you it's for the children. Oh, my gosh. I think, are they making, speaking of children, are they making a Greta Thunberg series or movie or something? I saw, I saw something about this over the weekend. And I feel, I'm not going to let Democrats forget that as though they've created a, a golden calf to worship, they hold, up, uh, they hold up someone who is a teenager who knows nothing as the global voice of an issue that they say, over which they say human extinction hangs in the balance. That's how that's how intellectually serious the Democrat Party is these days. And they have children and it's not for the faint of heart. And it's just not for the faint of. This is the this is the speaker of the House, folks. I wouldn't let her decide what color to paint my bedroom, but. She's a master legislator, she says, with a lot of power. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I think that the way that we beat Donald Trump is how we remember he's the enemy, right? He's the guy who's out there undercutting every democratic value, undercutting economic security for hardworking people. We need to remember that that's the direction we're heading. And we also need to remember a country that elected a man like Donald Trump is a country that was already in trouble. He's the the enemy. We have to remember that he's the the most evil man ever. If you took if you took uh, Hitler and Stalin and and the Grinch who stole Christmas and made them all one person, probably not make him green though, he'd be the the worst ever. These are not real arguments, my friends. Notice how she says he's undermining economic security for hardworking people. How? I, I'd like to know how. Now, the real argument against what Trump has done really comes from the right, comes from conservatism, which is that he has effectively just done the the most popular stuff when it comes to economics, meaning, you know, he's not he's just said this in his uh, campaigns, not campaign stump speeches recently, you know, his rallies. I mean, uh, he's not going to touch Social Security. He's not going to touch these uh, Medicare. He's not going to touch entitlements. Uh, federal spending is is through the roof. We're at a trillion dollar year deficit. I mean, the real problem here is that we're taking a more short term view. But that's not the same thing as saying he's undermining economic security for middle class people. That's just a lie. 
I mean, the Democrats have nothing. That's why there's such a desperation right now. That's how we have. We're going to get more into the Bloomberg discussion here in a moment. But that's how we have a realistic situation. I'm not saying a probable situation, not the same thing. A realistic situation in which we could have two white male geriatric billionaire businessmen from New York City squaring off as the Democrat and Republican nominees, or rather Democrat nominee, Republican incumbent. That we, we, we could, in fact, have that situation. And then all of a sudden, Bernie's oligarchs conversation feels a bit more like it's dealing in reality. Then we have to look at what's really gone on here and say to ourselves, hmm, maybe we are living in something of a plutocracy. But that is the future the Democrats now face, because what is what is really the pitch? I, I've been telling them all along it's not going to be Biden. By the way, I do believe Biden's going to have a strong, you know, a strong showing in South Carolina. African-American voters have started to turn away from Biden, though. And who are they turning to? Most recent polling, fascinating poll that came out, not one that you would have necessarily expected to see. I think it was Quinnipiac, but it doesn't really matter. It's one of the top polling places. And it had a, a, a hemorrhaging of support from Biden to, that's right, Bloomberg, from African-American Democrat primary voters. Because the African-American community in general, right, if we're looking at these demographic groups and, and voting patterns, they tend to they, they tend to vote for and want to vote for the person who will win and deliver Democratic priorities. There, there's less of an ideological alignment. There's more of a who's going to get this done for the Democrat Party. And I think, by the way, if you're really somebody who does just want Democrat policies, that's a that's a sensible position. The people that are trying to push for revolution and the, the you know, the Sandernistas and the AOC wing, I mean, they're often what could end up being fantasy land, although they think right now they would point to Bernie Sanders and say he's the front runner. And I think if we're being fair, if the media were not so concerned about Sanders, uh, if the media were not so concerned about the possibility of defending, you know, the the millionaire, uh, you know, the, the millionaire empty suits at CNN and MSNBC on TV who pretend to care so much about the working class and about minorities, they're going to have to go on TV and defend socialism, basically. That's what's going to happen. You know, the, the erudite Blitzer and, and Tapper and Cooper and, you know, none of them are actually erudite, by the way. They're all just vain, pompous jerks. But that's, you know, they're going to have to be in a position where they will say, like, well, Sanders is a democratic socialist and everybody really wants health care for all, Medicare for all, and... Uh, and they don't really want to have to do that. They want to go back to the Obama era where they're like, uh, this guy gives a great speech, has a has a lovely family, first African-American president, you know, and, and he's he's in the sort of the, the, the zeitgeist of the country. He's cool. He's charming. He, Hollywood loves him like they want to go back to that era. They don't want to have to deal with the kind of weird geriatric socialist. As their party standard bearer, there's an awareness in the establishment of the Democratic Party what this would really mean. And even more than that, 
understand that if Bernie Sanders, uh, if Bernie Sanders wins, it's a total loss for a lot of Democrat consultants. The whole Hillary crew, they're out. They're out in the cold. They know that the Hillary squad, the people that were trying to make hello, the president of the United States, they are perfectly happy now that they can attach themselves to, you know, Buttigieg and Warren and uh, and Klobuchar, maybe, you know, but these Biden certainly attach themselves to all these different candidates. But the Bernie people don't forget because they're true believers. And that's what Bernie has on his side. He's got true believers. And there are people right now in the Democratic establishment who have pretty prominent voices who don't really know how to play this one because they've seen, for example, what's gone on with never Trump. And by the way, I agree with those who say we shouldn't call them never Trump Republicans because they aren't Republicans anymore. They're just never Trump. That is their their only organizing political principle is that they will never support Donald Trump. They will help anyone. It does not matter anyone who comes forward to defeat Donald Trump. If they could you know, resurrect Mao or Stalin or whomever, and he was getting some good numbers in, in New Hampshire, they'd say, yeah, I'd vote for him over Trump. They don't care. Anybody over Trump. And they're certainly not Republicans, as we see from from Bill Kristol, who has abandoned, apparently, his life's work of trying to express and support conservative values all because of Trump. He now votes for Democrats. Same thing with Max Boots. Same thing with Tom Nichols. Same thing with Jennifer Rubin. These people are frauds. Or they were frauds, and maybe now they're just showing us who they were, who they were all along. I don't know. It, it could go either way, depending on the case study. I mean, Max Boot, I think, has honestly just had some kind of a, a psychological break with reality. But that's let's not get too far down into that. So the Democrats are aware of the risk here with Bernie Sanders looking like, as I come on air to talk to you right now, looking like he's going to win New Hampshire. And that if if we add the enthusiasm, the money raised, the, the donorship base, uh, if you add all that together and then you put on top of that a willingness for the establishment Democrat media to be favorable to Sanders. I mean, I was there. I was at CNN when off camera. You'd have all these you know, Democrat strategists. And I mean, I can't even name them all. And who cares? But you know what I'm talking about. The, the, all the, the usual rotation of of Democrat politicos over at CNN. And they'd all say, oh, yeah, man. I mean, you know, Bernie, Bernie's got all the enthusiasm. He's got all the authenticity. But, you know, it's got to be Hillary because we, you know, we need her in place. And they a lot of them needed her in place because it meant good things for them personally. It wasn't about the country. It wasn't even about the Democratic Party. So Bernie is a loss for them, even if Bernie wins the nomination. That's what you have to remember. So that's why there's all this hesitation from the establishment class to push for this, this socialist who, I, I've got to tell you, it, it'll be, I, I want Sanders versus Trump. That's the election I want. America needs, to, but we do run a risk there. You know, it's you got a lot of a lot of baked into the cake. Democrat states, they're they're done. We're not going to win them. It's in part Democrat policies, including uh, illegal immigration that have turned states entirely blue. Now, there's there's no hope of winning it in a national election. It's just not going to happen. And when you're talking about five or six states that are really in play and Bernie Sanders and that the media were to shift to his side, I still think I still think Trump. Is in is in really is in a really strong position, but we're living in a crazy world right now where a lot of people seem to have forgotten the lessons of socialism we've seen from the last hundred years or so. They just don't care. Yeah, Bernie's going to do it better this time around. Uh, even Gavin Newsom, I would note, have 
Uh, even Gavin Newsom says he has. I mentioned him before because he's destroying the state of California, which California is such a such a beautiful place, such an amazing state with so much to recommend it. And it's just it is being destroyed by bad ideas, by human decision making, uh, all of it on the left. It's a one party state. Here's what Newsom says about the rise of not just Sanders, but some of these other candidates. Would you play producer Mark 18? I like our chances in November as long as we unify. Look, my only look, I was just at the National Governors Association. and This is not comfortable for me to say, but talking to all the governors the last 48 hours, there's deep anxiety mm. that we're not publicly communicating around what is potentially emerging as a Bernie Sanders ascendancy with the Elizabeth Warren wing of the party and the prospects, as you were mentioning in the last segment, mm-hmm. that Bloomberg moves into that and you are in a place of civil war. It's not my point of view per se, but it is the anxiety that is, I think, spoken very much mm-hmm. universally spoken, but not publicly yet. Mm-hmm. And so we'll see what happens. So what is your anxiety? Uh, my, ans- my anxiety is... And I'll tell you, my anxiety is that Trump gets another four years. That's four my years. anxiety. That's everybody's. Yeah. So yeah. look, I mean, the good news is the, the Democratic Party is united with that principle in mind and with that yeah. frame. So that's where I'm ultimately confident. Bloomberg is the X factor here. I think that there's... Very little, little probability at this point that if it if the field really whittles down to Biden versus Sanders, I think Sanders beats him because Joe Biden is just he's a he's a third rate politician with a fourth tier mind. I, I've I've said it. I've stand beside stand beside it. The only way or stand behind it, beside it, around it, on top of it, whatever. The only way that uh, Biden got to this point was just the really the fumes of the Obama presidency. Uh, that's the only way that Biden became a front runner. There was nothing that he could point to or say or do from his own experience, from his own actual action that would put him in this position. But if if Bloomberg steps in, what you have now is, well, he has stepped in, but if Bloomberg emerges as really the alternative to the socialist wing of the Democrat Party, which is what Warren and Sanders, they're socialists. They can say other things. They are. If they were in Europe, they'd be socialists. We would just call them socialists. We wouldn't we wouldn't dance around the edges. They are socialists. Mike Bloomberg is not a socialist. He's actually if you if you really want to get into it, Mike Bloomberg is something more uh, similar to a, a Denmark style model. Higher taxes on the wealthy, very large state, but good administration of that government. You know, businesses able to function with a, a regulatory environment that is that is overbearing, but not overly destructive. You know, Bloomberg is Denmark. Bernie Sanders is like Venezuela 15 years ago. OK, I mean, Bernie Sanders is going to take us into another place if he can. Because he's he he is still not even walked away from having the government control. He wants the government. He has said this in the past, the government to control large sectors of the economy. That is full on socialism. That is socialism with a capital S. So Bloomberg may become the standard bearer of big government, but big government reasonably competent in its administration that still allows for the free market to operate, but is going to have a large welfare state. Is going to, Bloomberg is the guy that offers you Sweden or Denmark. Sanders is like, oh, no, we're going to do what Venezuela did. We're just going to be much better about it. And that's where this huge fight in the Democratic Party could well emerge. And, you know, Bloomberg can spend, you know, a billion dollars next month on ads. That, or, or he can spend five billion on ads if he really wants to. 
That goes a long way, my friends. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. to be mean to that group of Democrat, young Democrats who are sitting there, but the, that little clip is, I think, a metaphor for the entire Biden candidacy, which is that it's off key, a little weak, and kind of sad. <laughs> like, I just feel like, and, and, you know, the more you think about it, the more you're like, ah, that wasn't worth it. That wasn't a good idea. That That's what I see. Um, also, why go to the, I haven't had anybody go to the Backstreet Boys in a while. That was a, that's a throwback. I mean, that's producer Mark used to jam out to Backstreet Boys. Used to? Oh, still? Yeah. Backstreet Boys are great. Really? Yes. I'm impressed that you'll actually stand behind the yeah, Backstreet 100%. Boys as a choice. I have no shame. I love the Backstreet Boys. What about NSYNC? I mean, I like some of their songs, but I prefer the Backstreet Boys. What about 98 Degrees? I mean, they have the one song, right? Yeah. Do you remember Savage Garden, by the way? Uh yeah, that, I, I, they have a couple songs. This was right? all this is all Z100 back in the day. I listened to Z100 all through high school, so I remember these songs pretty well. But yeah, I remember 98 Degrees was kind of like the poor man's In Sync, which was kind of like the poor man's Backstreet Boys. Sure. in my in my eyes, in yeah. my view, the Backstreet Boys won all the awards, but all the girls loved In Sync. Yeah, is that is that the way it was? Yeah, yeah. So and that was a back yeah Backstreet. I was actually a Backstreet Boys song they're singing for Joe there Biden. There was everybody. Every ba- oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not one. gonna I'm not gonna do it. Please I'm, not, don't. I'm gonna spare you today because I know you've got that whistle noise ready for me whenever it's like I do, I'm a yeah. dog that you're training. <laughs> uh, play, uh, but the, here's more Biden. Here's what he has to say about Greta Thunberg. I'm not letting the Democrats forget this insanity. Play 19, please. You don't have to stand while the president of the United States denies climate change, watches the planet burn, and attacks Greta Thunberg, a teenager, for providing leadership that he should be providing. Greta Thunberg providing leadership that the president should be providing on climate change. If you're an adult human being and you think that you should be listening to a, an ill-educated teenager or undereducated teenager because she hasn't been in school in two years. So she has at this point the equivalent of, I think, a 10th grade education, maybe, if that. Maybe a ninth grade education. I mean, who knows how long they've been prepping her to be this icon of climate change talking points. Uh, but if you're an adult and you still get all get all excited and woo about about Greta Thunberg, you're just either not very smart or not very honest. There's there's I don't know what the third option could be. She doesn't know what she's talking about. She doesn't know anything about any of this. Why should adults listen to her? Oh, because Democrats love to put out victims or people who are shielded from criticism by the nature of who they are to make political arguments that Democrats kind of must know are really going to get annihilated by intelligent people. So you put a victim forward, you put a child forward, somebody that you're not allowed to criticize the message because then you're criticizing the person. And why are you so mean? Buck, are you child bashing again? You child basher. I don't I don't bash kids. I'm actually super nice. So. Joe Biden. Oh, it's not that he's dishonest, by the way. He is dumb enough to listen to a 16-year-old girl about trillions of dollars of economic uh, policy. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
right now you have Mayor Bloomberg running. Some people look at him as the solution. Is he part of the solution or is he part of the problem when you talk about big money in politics? Well, I think you're exactly right. He's part of the problem. Look, Bloomberg, anybody else in America has the right to run for president. But I think in a democracy, you do not have the right to buy the president presidency. And it really is absurd that we have a guy who's prepared to spend already many hundreds of millions of dollars on TV ads. Meanwhile, he did not do what all of the other Democratic candidates do. He wasn't holding town meetings in Iowa or New Hampshire, Nevada or South Carolina. Those were not important enough for him. He could simply buy the election with hundreds of millions of dollars of ads. That is wrong. That is the basic fundamental problem of American society is that billionaires have extraordinary wealth and power over the economic and political life of this country. And that's what we're fighting to end. Why is it wrong, Bernie? In what way is it wrong? You may not like it, but when you say it's wrong, it makes it sound like it's something that we should stop. People pay for ads of all kinds all the time. Money and speech are very much related. I am doing a radio show right now. There is money that is related to this show. This is a business, right? We all get this. We all intuitively have an understanding of this. But Bernie Sanders acts like Bloomberg is walking around offering everybody at the polling place, you know, $1,000 in cash. To, oh, wait, no, that's Andrew Yang. <laughs> and what is Bernie Sanders offering? Bernie Sanders is trying to pay off voters with the money that he will take from other people, he says. But the big trick here is that it's going to come from the person he's paying off to. Or at least if that person is a productive member of society who pays taxes, then it's going to come from that person as well in one way or another. Or it's going to come out of their wages. It's going to come out of their uh, ability to pay their own bills, make their own financial decisions. This is why Tom Steyer, for example, is trying to run further to the left to just get some traction. I mean, what what a bizarre situation with this guy. He may, in fact, have helped Donald Trump by spending so much money. Tom Steyer spent so much money on impeachment ads that he had no money left to buy a second tie. So we see him in that same tartan plaid tie all the time. It's just weird. I don't know who told him it's a good idea. It's not. Tom, get a new tie or go tieless. That would be interesting for a Democrat. I think Yang does that sometimes. Go no tie. I go no tie these days. I like the I like the throat area to be uh, free and unencumbered, especially as a radio host or somebody who's doing this kind of content. I don't I don't like to feel that strangulation of the necktie. Some of you are probably like, where does the necktie even come from? Well, it actually comes from France. I believe it was around the time of Louis the Fourteenth. There were mercenaries, but it might have been Louis XV, so don't, don't quote me on that one. But there were mercenaries in the employ of the French king from Croatia. They were called a cravati, and they wore a colored piece of cloth around their neck as part of their, their dress, right? Distinguishing each other on the battlefield and also showing what unit you were a part of walking around all the time. That was a, a big thing then, and distinguishing with bright colors. So the cravati gave the French, who... Don't tell the English this, but have been kind of the fashion template of the Western world for many centuries now. Uh, gave them the cravat, which is now the necktie that is worn as an accompaniment to a, a traditional Western style suit. That's how we get the necktie. Uh, if you if it wasn't a tradition, you'd have to sit around and think, why would people put 
a an expensive you know silk noose around their own neck. It's it, it's not practical. It doesn't make sense. It's not comfortable. So I'm not saying go you know go with the Ahmadinejad look either. I'm not I'm not a fan of that. Do you guys remember remember Ahmadinejad? He was like bad guy number one for a while. Or I guess after Bin Laden, but we really didn't like Ahmadinejad. But his name was fun to say. Now he's just sort of receded into no one no one cares. Uh, anyway, that's now you know now you know where neckties come from. Khravati, Croatian mercenaries, brightly colored cloth around the neck. That's how we got the necktie today. I've never. I mean, I, I saw producer Mark in a, in a in a tie in black tie at his wedding, and I, it was like it was unrecognizable. I was like, producer Mark, are you in there somewhere? But sure enough, even even all of us at formal occasions and formal situations. We think some form of tie, whether it be bow tie or something else. All right, back to Mayor Mike. Back to Bloomberg. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg. I also remember his his time as mayor of New York when there would be a, a storm. We got to find some. There was this account, Bloombergito, on Twitter for a while because when there would be a large snowstorm or something, he would go, you know, no mas necesito por el snow o uh, you know he he doesn't he doesn't really speak Spanish. <laughs> Do you remember this, Mark? Remember did you ever see this back in the day? Bloomberg Bloomberg-y in Spanish when he'd be like, uh, "Yo soy uh, yo soy el mayor de Bloombergo." <laughs> it was unintentionally kind of hilarious. He was not. Yeah, El Bloombito was the uh, Twitter account. Producer Nick just uh, just sent that one over the over the transom for me. Uh, anyway, Bloomberg is increasingly looked at as a, as a serious as a, I, I like to call him an X factor because the polls have him nationally, maybe fourth or fifth place. Remember, he, he got in super late. He's got all this money. Uh, Bernie Sanders doesn't like that he's able to spend all this money. But keep in mind, uh, what's the alternative? This is why Democrats who are obsessed with control are always pushing for regulations on campaign finance because what they really want is the ability to determine who you know union speech uh, rather union money that goes to political ads or political donations that's considered fine because that's power to the people but money from a corporation is considered bad even though for example goldman sachs big hillary donors big hillary donors over at goldman sachs now not you look at wall street these big wall street firms they like they like establishment democrats big time that's been the case for a while. So Bernie is is saying uh, that, you know, he, he's saying that what Bloomberg's doing is wrong. But keep in mind that part of his pitch is it, it's all about giving people stuff, stuff that is unearned. Sanders just does it through a, a socialist mechanism that hides the source of it, which is why he says stuff like this. Play uh, clip 20, please. When we talk about education, again, this is not radical stuff. In the year 2020, every person in America who has the ability and the desire should be able to get a higher education. That is why we're going to make public colleges and universities tuition free. Now, four years ago when I proposed that, that seemed like a radical idea. It ain't so radical now because that's what states and cities and communities all over America are doing. And I'll tell you something else, and this is thinking outside of the box. And that is, 12 years ago, the United States Congress, against my vote, bailed out the crooks on Wall Street who nearly destroyed our economy. Two years ago, Trump and his friends gave a trillion dollars in tax breaks to the 1% in large profitable corporations, such that companies like Amazon, which made over $10 billion last year, 
did not pay one nickel in federal income tax. If we could bail out Wall Street and give tax breaks to billionaires, we can cancel all student debt in this country. Now, he'll say that that's because it's fair. We're going to cancel student debt. The billionaires will pay for it. Okay, fine. What about people that have been paying off their loans for the last 20 years? Is it fair to them? Warren got asked this question, and she did not handle it very well. She kind of dismissed a a possible uh, supporter or, or Democrat primary voter. She dismissed the person and said that essentially, you know, she had no answer for this because she doesn't have an answer for this. She doesn't. What do you say to people who have spent now, who have made choices for years and years? One of the one of the fundamental promises that all these Democrat candidates are making is to protect individuals from their own bad decision making or from their own responsibility. I'm not saying it's a bad decision. Maybe it's not a bad decision to take out loans. I mean, I sit here and speak of what I know. I looked at I looked at going to get an MBA uh, MBA degree, you know, master's in business administration, which a lot of people I know who have done that now look back at it and I think wouldn't wouldn't repeat the process don't think it was worth it but when all was said and done by the time i paid off those loans with with, you know with interest and over the period of the full duration of the loan over the life of 20 or 30 years whatever it was it's going to be a quarter of a million dollars that's what it was going to spend for me to go to a two-year mba program it's going to cost because you're going to go about one hundred and fifty thousand or so in debt and by the time you pay it off it'll be almost double that Uh, that was the full the full payment that you were going to have to make over time. And I said, nah, I'm going to go work for Glenn Beck at this new cool company. And bam, here I am now, years later, syndicated host on WR Radio, biggest market in the country now, 6 to 7 tonight, 6 to 7 Monday through Friday Eastern time. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, or if you're in the tri-state area, listen on 710WOR, you know, as one does. But I made this calculation myself, and I just said, I don't want to be paying off those loans, even though I was looking at what would be considered elite MBA programs. I still didn't think it was worth it. Didn't want to do it. Just didn't want to do it. And other people who have made that decision, maybe they think it's great, but you know, you you embark upon a path you embark upon a path where you've made a promise to pay things back. So what is why should the government come along and say, no, that doesn't doesn't really count anymore? Why does the government think that it has a right to take more from some of us to give more to others because it's going to put people like Bernie Sanders in power? There's a there's a root fallacy involved in all of this because Sanders never tells you what the effect of this will be, what the downside is. You only hear about the upside. You're going to cancel all student loan debt. OK, do you think that's going to make uh, is that going to make colleges all of a sudden feel more or less free to keep jacking up the cost of attending a four year school? Because now it's, just, it's effectively taxpayer subsidized the whole thing. You know, now the and a lot of colleges have become glorified uh, minor league sports programs where they allow you to take some sociology and communications classes in between going to frat parties. I mean, let's be honest. That's the truth of a lot of American colleges. I know, oh, nobody wants to hear it. Everyone's getting a great education. A lot of people aren't meant to spend four years of their lives pretending to do higher level educational work. That, that's just the truth. People should learn skills and responsibility. You know, the the most important job skills that I've figured out at this stage in my life involve things like uh, why it matters, why why it matters to do what you say you're going to do, when you say you're going to do it, how you deal with other people, strategic decision making, being responsible, being dependable. Essentially, the greatest training you really have for a job is having jobs, doing a job. 
But we don't think of it that way. It's all, oh, we, everyone needs to have an undergraduate degree. If everyone has an undergraduate degree, guess what? It's not as valuable as it used to be. Bernie Sanders thinks that he can suspend the laws of supply and demand. He thinks that he can go and and wipe aside, uh, move, is, is move asunder the right way? I don't know. Asunder I might be using him probably, but he, he could wash away the problems of a market, the problems that intrusions in a market economy will create, and he makes promises that he can't keep. That's what all this is really about. Now, Bloomberg, all right, I've been saying that he can give you something a little more like, a little more like Sweden, a little more like Denmark. He also is willing to say some things that Democrats don't like. There's some leaked audio of Mayor Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg, that we're going to get to here, and let's work through it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 95% of your murders and murderers and murder victims fit one and all. You can just take the description and zero assets and pass it out to all the cops. They are male minorities 15 to 21. That's true in New York, it's true in virtually every city. And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of those people that get killed. She's going to be wondering, send the money to a lot of cops in the street, put those cops where the crime is, which means in minority neighborhoods. So this is one of the unintended consequences is people say, oh my God, you are arresting kids for marijuana that are all minorities. Yes, that's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. And the way she got the guns out of her kids' hands is uh, to throw them up against the wall and, and frisk them. And then they start, they say, oh, I don't want that, I don't want to get caught, so they don't bring the gun. They still have a gun, but they leave it at home. Uh-oh. Mayor Bloomberg here saying some things that you're not allowed you're not allowed to say as a Democrat. Not allowed to say it. People are calling it racist. I even saw, I believe uh, there have been people, there have been Trump supporters who say that stopping they're, they're not all saying stop and frisk is racist. Guys, if you were pro stop and frisk all of your life until a couple of moments ago, that is not a principled thing to do. So I, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on some of those conservatives out there who are saying, oh, stop and frisk is so racist just because they feel like it's going to be a good way to attack Bloomberg. I mean, if you were saying stop and frisk was a good idea five years ago, I want to know why you've changed. I, I've seen the data and at least the data the city of New York provides, although I will say that I have law enforcement sources who will say that there's the perception value of stop and frisk in dangerous areas uh, led to them being safer. But just in terms of how many people were stopped, uh, stop, rather in terms of people being stopped for stop and frisk and crime rates in the city, they stopped the practice and the crime did not spike the way some people thought it would. Now, maybe people would point to what's going on now and say there was a delay and that perception shifted. It's a complicated argument to be had for sure. But I don't like seeing the... Uh, the switch here into, oh, well, well, because it's useful for attacking Bloomberg, let's all just pretend we didn't say those things we said before. But now let's dig into what he said. This is this is interesting because, folks, if you listen to the show yesterday, I told you I remember I was discussing this with you talking about criminal justice reform and and law and order in New York and, and across the country. Dun dun. 
we should, I, I don't know, that noise from whenever I think of law and order, I think of that noise. And I, I definitely have lost like six hours at a time to just binge watching that show, which if you watch enough law and order, you will find out that the writers of law and order believe that the, uh, the greatest murder threat in New York City is usually uh, white, college-educated, rich guys who live on the Upper East Side who go to country clubs. They, they're the ones that lose their temper and just kill the maid with a golf club. You know, that's, that's, always, that's what happens in Law & Order. You're like, oh, gee, I guess that's, that's, where, we, that's where the real, the real criminal uh, concern should come from. Uh, turns out, though, the statistics have a slightly, uh, slightly different picture, and that is what Mayor Bloomberg is talking about here. And this is true. And as you know, I spent time in the NYPD. I had access to all the different databases and the information that, in fact, I had more information than a vast majority of, of rank and file police officers because I was in the most sensitive single part of the NYPD on the terrorism side, but also just had a, effectively a much broader access uh, than guys who were actually walking the streets, keeping us safe, by the way. Their job was a lot harder than mine. Uh, but I did see a lot and know a lot as a result of that. And... Gosh, I got to be careful. I didn't know a lot. As a, that's true. Uh, I mean, and if you just read the newspaper, you understand this. If you see the basic statistics out of Rikers Island, as I mentioned to you, I mean, Rikers Island, which is the main penitentiary, criminal penitentiary for New York City, is over 90 percent black and Hispanic. New York City overall. And this I actually have to check. Uh, Producer Mark, if you would to tell me what the percentage is of New York City that is black and percentage that is Hispanic. I think it's about. I think it's in the 30 percent range, maybe, if you add those two demographics together. Uh, I think New York is now about 50 percent minority overall, but there's a large Asian population. Although I should know these stats off the top of my head, I should see. So we'll pull some of that demographic data and take a look at it. But it's not 90 percent black and Hispanic, that's for sure. And that is the current incarceration uh, population. That, that is the current demographic percentage of those incarcerated at Rikers Island. What Bloomberg is is talking about here is... If, you know, he's just being he's just what in his mind being brutally honest about how, here's how you stop crime in New York City. Here's how it works. Here's how you do it. Democrats don't want to hear that. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. We got more Bloomberg audio, by the way, on a similar topic. I want to dive into this a bit. But, but producer Mark, do you have the. What what is the population uh, demographic numbers for New York City on this? It is forty two percent white. It looks like twenty five percent black or African American. Right. Other is fifteen percent. So I assume that would be Hispanics and thirteen percent uh, Asian. Thirteen percent Asian. Yeah. Okay. So am I? Was I pretty? So they you don't really break accurate. out the Hispanic. Yeah. I mean, I said it's about let's say it's thirty to forty percent black and Hispanic. Yes. I think. Okay. So it, let, let's say it's, you know, it's in that range and you got 90 percent of Rikers Island is and it's really, I think, 92 percent might even have been as high at one point as nine. Uh, Bloomberg here in his audio says 95 percent black and his uh, that, that 95 percent of murders and murderers and murder victims. Now, he's talking about this and Democrats don't want to hear this. And there are people are calling it racist and even some Republicans are saying it's racist. Guys, come on. Is what he said racist or is what he said a recitation of facts that are uncomfortable for people to hear. As a conservative, you, you got to you got to be honest to the facts and what's really going on here. Do we really, by the way? Do we really think Mike, do we really think Mike Bloomberg's a big racist now? Is that the new story? Come on. So, Bloomberg uh, is saying that if you want to deal with criminality in neighborhoods, and, and it is true, 
for example, I mean, I, I know the, the, the data in New York pretty well. In the South Bronx and Central Eastern Brooklyn is where you have a vast majority of the homicides. In two parts of a vast city, where you, if you live in Chicago, I don't know Chicago well at all, but my friends from Chicago say that you know the South Side and a little bit of what is now the West part of Chicago is where really all the murders happen. So if you're trying to stop murders, you probably go in the areas where there are more murders and and try to prevent that from happening. Take bad guys off the streets. Take illegal guns off the streets, and. Because remember, anybody who's ever committed, anyone who's committed a felony who has a firearm is already committing another felony. And that's a common enough thing you see here in New York City. Uh, but then again, treating somebody who has an unlicensed double-barreled shotgun they used to go sporting clay shooting as a bad person who's a threat to public safety is moronic, is an idiotic thing. But that's what they do here in New York. And by the way, Virginia, you're not far behind. Those of you listening in the Virginia area, or in Virginia, Virginia area, you can see how quickly once they flip a state, they'll turn you into a felon. They don't care for not doing anything wrong, for being a law-abiding citizen who wants to wants to enjoy your Second Amendment rights responsibly. They'll just say, "Nope, that gun you've had legally for twenty years, you keep it. You're a felon now. You're a bad person. You should go to prison. Separate you from your family. Ruin your life." Yeah, that's how Democrats roll when they get into power, my friends. That and, you know, kill a baby up to the moment of birth. That's that's really what the Democratic Party stands for these days. Uh, but there's more. By the way, there's more leaked Bloomberg audio, which I, I think the left wing activists are going after this guy big time, bigly, bigly as uh, Trump. And uh, he Trump taught me a word, folks. I didn't know that bigly was a word. So I give I'm somebody who uses a lot of different words. I like to try to use fancy words, even if I mess it up, then I come back and tell you what the real word is. But Trump uh, taught me bigly, but the left-wing activists don't like Bloomberg. Please play the other audio. It's about a similar issue. Play it. They just keep saying, oh, it's a disproportionate percentage of a particular ethnic group. That may be, but it's not a disproportionate percentage of those who witnesses and victims describe as committing the murder. In that case, incidentally, I think we disproportionately stop whites too much and minorities too little. (gasps) Bloomberg's not allowed to say that. Not allowed to say that. I mean, we all understand at some level this already occurs in law enforcement as a uh, a concession to people's politically correct sensibilities. You know, I mean, I, I recently I recently went to an event where you know they really wanded me down a whole bunch of times, emptied out my you know just an event open to the public, wanted me down, open up open up my pockets and everything else. And, uh, you know, I, I went to a Knicks game not long ago saying, you know, they ah, look, they wand everybody down. But sometimes we, you get you feel like you get a little bit of extra attention. Does anybody really think that I'm like a suicide bomber? No, I, I don't think so. And same thing with the TSA. I, I get pulled aside for secondary all the time. Yeah, let's pull that guy. Guy who looks kind of like he belongs to the, you know, Michael P. Keaton fan club or whatever from Family Ties back in the day. Like, yeah. Let's get him. Let's let's you know turn his pockets out and see what he's got. I mean, come on, right? But but they do that so that then when the guy comes over who, you know, looks like he's straight out of an Al Qaeda training camp, and they and they check him too, they're less likely, they're less likely to get hit with a lawsuit or something else. Because as much as we're all told we we never make any, never make any distinctions about this, uh, the fact of the matter is that all human beings intuitively believe and or know certain things to be more likely 
based on their own experience. That doesn't mean certain. It doesn't mean a definitive judgment, but to be more likely. And people, when it really matters, do play the odds. They do play the odds. And when it comes to life or death issues, they care a lot less about CNN saying mean things about them. Right? They just they just want to live. They want to stay alive. Um, Bloomberg here is talking about how he was able to continue the policies of Rudy Giuliani that cleaned up New York City and made it safer for everyone. In a, just a straight numerical analysis, you could argue very easily. I mean, I think you make a case that's effectively irrefutable that Giuliani and then Bloomberg were responsible for policies, policing policies in particular that saved in the in the in the thousands of lives of primarily black and Hispanic residents of New York City, you know, victims of gun violence, victims of robberies, victims of rapes. I mean, thousands of lives saved. But do you think that buys Bloomberg enough currency among the woke left wing Democrats today to have a conversation about what's really going on? with crime in New York City, how you stop crime. He's saying, and now the part of this that might actually get in the most trouble is, you know, you put young, he says that it's 16 to 25-year-old uh, minorities, and by that he means black and Hispanic, because Asian Americans, I don't, even, I don't even know if they're 1% of the Rikers population. They, there are some inmates, I'm sure, but I mean, it's, it's probably less than 1% of Rikers Island is Asian American. Uh, so he's saying you put black and Hispanic young men up against the wall, frisk them. And what this does is create a mentality among minorities in dangerous neighborhoods that they know they can't uh, go around carrying guns because they might get frisked for something minor. And if they get caught with a gun, now they are going to prison. Now they are in real trouble, which limits this. This is his theory. You can argue whether it's true or not from a from a criminal justice perspective, whether it's effective or not. But the problem that Mike Bloomberg is going to run into here is that the left wing uh, wants to just tell a narrative to its supporters, particularly because the Democratic Party is entirely dependent upon black votes to be viable at the national level. The Democratic Party's preferred narrative about our criminal justice system is that it is racist. It is racist, 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 top to bottom, all around. Everything about it is racist. And you'd say, OK, well, there is racism in the system for sure. And there is still racism in America, no question. But what is the Democratic Party's answer about what to do about the fact that I just keep speaking about Rikers Island because I can't tell you the statistics in other places, but Rikers Island is over 90 percent black and Hispanic. Why? And what do we do about it? Do Democrats even try to answer these questions? I mean, to say it's racism is to imply that, you know, members of MS-13, of you know the Bloods, the Crips, Latin Kings, you know, these these major crime organizations that kill people that engage in assassinations of witnesses are the people that are in Rikers for, you know, for charges related to being in those groups, for example. Are, are we saying that they're innocent or are we saying that society made them do these things? What, what are liberals really saying? You know, the system is racist. So what does that mean? Bloomberg just takes the approach of how do we stop people from being killed in the streets? We focus on where the bad areas are and we put more police there and we try to keep people safer. I've been telling you this all along. Bloomberg's liability or Bloomberg's weakness among Democrats is his relative sanity. Remember, he was a Republican, by the way, in New York, which doesn't really count, but, you know. Bloomberg's problem is that he can do math and he lives in reality, except on climate change. But he, he understands the way the world actually works around him. And Democrats don't they're not OK with that. They don't want to hear it. They expect a narrative to be supported 
from all of the major politicians in their party that the only problems that need to be addressed in the criminal justice system are mass incarceration, which is rooted in racism, and police brutality, which is rooted in racism, and any other conversation about why are some communities in some areas of the country having such higher rates of criminality? What can we do to address this as a country, as a society, or you know, as a, just a law enforcement community? What can we do? Can't have that conversation. You got to got to pretend like you're just as likely to be robbed walking around in, you know, uh, a, a part of downtown Salt Lake City as you are walking around uh, in the worst parts of New York City. It's just, you know, a city's a city and there's no difference. And let's just let's suspend critical faculties so that we can't actually do police work properly and protect people and keep them safe. And as he points out here, and this will get lost in this, he's talking about primarily protecting minorities. Vast majority of gun violence victims are of a black or Hispanic uh, perpetrator is uh, black or Hispanic. The victims are black or Hispanic as well because there are people in their same communities in impoverished areas, generally speaking, by the statistics. So he's trying to keep people alive in these communities. He's trying to make sure that, you know, someone who, you know, a, a black father in the Bronx or a you know, a Hispanic mother in Queens who's trying to do the right thing, trying to get to work, trying to take care of her kids, doesn't have to worry about being, you know, mugged and stabbed on a subway platform. That means putting more cops in, yes, minority, uh, minority dominated areas, right? My areas where there are far more minorities than there are anybody else, poor, which tend to be poorer parts of the city. But, you know, Bloomberg's not allowed to say this at the national level, even though in New York City, what he's saying is just he's just reciting facts, mostly, except for the thing about putting people up against the wall. He's just reciting the facts. Facts are kryptonite for Democrat policy, though. They hate it. They don't like it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. No, man, by the way, those who say the tree of liberty is water with the blood of patriots, a great line. Well, guess what? The fact is, if you're going to take on the government, you need an F-15 with Hellfire missiles. There's no way an AK-47 is going to take care of you if, the, if you're going to take on, you're worried about the government coming down, knocking down your door. And so it's bizarre. We never said you, you could own any weapon at all from the beginning. You can't own a machine gun. You can't own a bazooka. You can't own an M1 tank. And no matter how much money you have, you can limit the kind of weapons that are able to be owned. And so I think, and by the way, I've, all the work I've done on this, including in our administration, I, I now have over 58 percent of the NRA members acknowledging you can't own an assault weapon. There's no need for it. You can't have, you can't have a magazine that has more than 10, 10 rounds in it. That's a perfect example of why it is that I'm very comfortable telling you that Joe Biden is stupid. I don't mean that I disagree with him. I don't mean that I don't like what he says or I just don't think he's very bright. What, what, what was the argument that he's even making there? What is he even trying to say that, you know, because to fight against a government, to fight against government tyranny, you're going to need an, an F-15 uh Therefore, you can't have an assault rifle. Hold on a second. This is an argument that only dishonest or dumb people make in the first place, right? How many how many F-15s do the Taliban have flying around in the sky? Yeah, and how's how's the whole pacification of Afghanistan thing going? 
not so well. How many how many F-15s? I mean, you, know, you just go down the list here. Uh, do do groups that have been able to overthrow governments? You know, how many F-15s? This would be this is we could do this all day long, right? Anytime when there's been an insurgency, especially one that started out with an asymmetrical, asymmetrical and inferiority on the battlefield, but ended up winning, it's because for governments to really control a population, they have to be able to deploy soldiers in areas without taking large levels of casualties. Right? That's real population control. Is you can have your soldiers walking around kicking in doors, doing whatever they have to do, doing whatever they want to do without any realistic threat of anyone taking out 10 or 20 or 50 of them. You don't need a lot of people. You don't need a lot of trained or just even uh, people willing to take shots at a, an occupying force or at a tyrannical force before it takes the, it takes casualties that are unsustainable. We, we know this. Like America has been trying to deal with pacification of a very small percentage of the overall population in Iraq and Afghanistan actively engaged in insurgency, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. We all understand this, right? I mean, th think about it. Think about it this way. Uh, if, if we had a tyrannical, put, put Sanders aside, we had a tyrannical socialist government come to power in the United States and the, through executive order said that, you know, this, the Second Amendment is, is suspended and we're coming to take all of your guns and we're sending federal agents door to door. How do we think that would go? Um, it would be a, a nightmare scenario for the government. They would be losing people in that process. If they were kicking in doors and saying, we've come for all of your guns, we all know that there would be a fight back against this. If you had your family member disappear in the middle of the night because, you know, the FBI, again, under a future tyrannical administration, I'm not trying to fear monger here or anything else, but we're going to play this theory out. Why do we have a Second Amendment? How is it a check on tyranny? You know, if if I if I had a wife and kids and my wife, who was some kind of constitutional activist, right, she loves the Constitution, sounds like somebody I'd marry, uh, and she disappears in the middle of the night because the FBI comes and takes her from me. And, you know, first of all, I, I don't think I'd let that happen. But anyway, uh, if they come and take her from me, they say and then they come back and they say they're going to you know take my college age children too. second time around. If I've got an AR-15, um, those those tyrannical federal government agents may have a really tough, really tough night in store for them. If I've got a butcher knife, it's probably a tough night for me. And that's the end of it. And they know that. So we all understand that having weapons in common usage, which is now under the D under DCV Heller, our constitutional understanding of this, weapons in common usage at a given time are necessary for self-defense and for being a check on tyranny. The, oh, you don't have nukes argument is for morons. But Joe Biden's a moron. And it's really to the disgrace and discredit of the Democrat Party that this is who they've been putting forward as long as they have and expecting us all to think that this person, he doesn't even have, you know, look, Trump is not an academic. I get it. But Trump has incredible instincts. Trump is incredibly clever. Trump understands people in a way that Joe Biden never has or never could. He does have skills. He does have mental faculties and very stable genius qualities kind of kidding there, but he does have these qualities that Joe Biden does not have. And Trump is a gifted politician. Joe Biden is a mediocre at best politician who does not even understand the arguments in support of the Second Amendment and yet thinks that he's in a position to tear them down. It's amazing what that guy's been able to get away with. The fact that he's even been able to bamboozle Delaware into voting for him 
Come on, Delaware. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Of all the troubling conclusions that you have to draw from the Trump era, the disparity in our justice system between Democrats and Republicans, politically sensitive cases, politically connected individuals, whether they're prosecuted, whether they're investigated, and what their sentencing will be, that is something that you cannot ignore anymore. If you are paying attention, you see what's going on here. The establishment, the Democrats control the bureaucracy. They control far too many of the people that are making decisions about prosecution, about investigation, and about sentencing. And they, because they ideologically tend toward arrogance and a belief that they have better intentions and better knowledge about all things on the other side, they tend not to go toward the merciful and like to make an example of their political opponents. And for those of you who haven't heard me say this before, run one of my favorite experiments. Sit here and off the top of your head, think of politically charged or even politically motivated investigations of prominent political figures on the left that were farcical, that were unfair, that were that never should have happened. Try. Think about this. Who are the Democrats who have been under criminal investigation and even then perhaps indictment and prosecution that were basically innocent or were being treated very, very unfairly? I'm what I mean, Rod Blagojevich. I mean, no. And that was Democrats that are that are throwing him under the bus. That was the Obama administration that made an example of him. Uh, who, who exactly is? I don't know. If you think of some, let me know. All right. Now let's play the game on the other side. Who are Republicans who have been unfairly targeted by prosecutors, by investigative law enforcement authorities, usually at the federal, sometimes at the state level, for obvious partisan purposes? Right. OK. Uh, we have got. Whew, let's just go down the list. Ted Stevens, prosecutorial misconduct used to go after him change the results of a and really change the outcome uh, of a Senate election it was election interference if such a thing can exist from prosecution uh, you have Rick Perry uh, was going to be prosecuted for trying to stop funding of an office that had a Democrat prosecutor in it who was arrested for drunk driving and wouldn't leave her job saying that was an abuse of power oh that's another phrase that Democrats like to abuse uh, you have Governor Bob McDonnell who Speaking of quid pro quo, never actually did anything for the businessman who gave him gifts and money, but it just looked sleazy, and it did look sleazy, uh, but they were going to send him to prison for 11 years and his wife to prison who held no elective office and did no no favors for anyone of any kind. So that, and that, by the way, the Supreme Court ended up siding against the state prosecutors in Virginia, that's right, Virginia getting bluer and bluer, who went after Bob McDonald, who at one point was a... Uh, presidential vice, uh, a vice presidential contender on, on the shortlist for Mitt Romney. Pierre Delecto. Uh, Chris Christie, Bridgegate, he didn't do anything wrong. He had some people that made a huge deal about a traffic jam in, in New Jersey, which is also known as being in New Jersey. Uh, I remember people were claiming that there might be murder charges attached to this, like pundits, moron pundits, and MSNBC. I forget who it was who said it, but because if you had an ambulance that was late, 
as a result of the traffic jam. Then you could claim murder charges. I mean, it's just there was all this stuff. You on the, oh, and then, of course, most notably, Donald Trump lying about Carter Page to the FISA court to get a FISA warrant on him to spy on the Trump campaign to you know, the persecution of Trump using the apparatus. This is a big problem. Unequal justice uh, with with a political with a political motivation really does undermine the whole system. And we have this and it keeps happening and we never get uh, we never get any satisfying responses about why it is this way. Well, we have the latest example of this. The. Roger Stone, whom I know a little bit and whom is, I mean, I've met him, I'm not like buddies, uh, who is a strange fellow, but an interesting fellow. He, according to federal prosecutors, should face seven to nine years. I mean, the guy's almost 70 years old. Seven to nine years in federal prison for lying to investigators and I think obstruction. Let me just make sure I see what the what the charges are here. Um yeah, for lying to Congress and, oh, witness tampering. That's what I was like during the Russian investigation. The witness tampering, I've seen the text messages or the DMs, whatever they were, and it's very clear that he he might well have been joking with them or, or just trying to be kind of a little edgy and funny, but they're still wanting to send him to prison for that. And uh, they say lying to Congress. Okay, well, lying to Congress is something that's bad. You shouldn't do it. Where do you think they're going to be on the uh, former F- acting FBI director, Andrew McCabe, for lying to the FBI under oath? Similar federal criminal act. You think he's going to you think they're going to ask for seven to nine years in federal prison for him? Of course not. You think they're going to ask for any prison time for him? No. Now, don't you think that there's a stronger case if you are trying to be honest about this, if you're trying to do this on the merits? Don't you think there's a stronger case for making an example of someone who spent a career locking other people up for breaking the law, Andy McCabe, instead of locking up a 70-year-old man who didn't harm anyone, do anything bad. Who is the victim in the case of Roger Stone? Who exactly? Oh, well, the victims are the left-wing Trump deranged maniacs who want to just get as many scalps as they can from anybody in Trump's orbit because they could not take Trump down with their big Russia collusion lie. That's the that's the real those are the victims, so to speak. Those are the only people that are really upset by this. Seven to nine years in federal prison. Those prosecutors just just asking for that should be an embarrassment. They should feel shame just asking a court to sentence Roger Stone to seven to nine years in federal prison. Yeah. Quote, Roger Stone obstructed Congress's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election, lied under oath and tampered with a witness. And when his crimes were revealed by the indictment in the, in the case, he displayed contempt for this court and for the rule of law. For that, he should be punished. Prosecutors said the recommended sentence is 87 months to 108 months in prison, seven to nine years. Seven charges they found him guilty on. They found him guilty, let's not forget, about lying... Um, about non-material facts, or, or, or unimportant, I shouldn't say non-material, unimportant facts, about a sham investigation driven by Democrat frenzy and insanity over Hillary's loss in 2016. That's now the justice system that we're supposed to have? 
Roger Stone is going to go to prison for perhaps almost a decade. And the guy is I'm trying to find how old he is exactly. And I think he's like 70. And he's, he's a senior citizen. And they're going to send him to prison for that long. How long? How long do you think they're going to give Andy McCabe for lying? How long do they give Bill Clinton for lying under oath? Oh, that's right. No criminal charges. Right. Because he was a Democrat and there are different rules, different, different guidelines for Democrats. They're going to just, you know, make whatever they have to make go away because Bill just wants to take take all the ladies and hug them and hold them close and give them a squeeze. And they're just fine with all that. Fine with all of it. I don't know what we can really say about this other than uh, it has to stop. It's the result of the uh, left-wing takeover of the faculty lounge, which we have to remember now extends into law schools, too. Law schools are very left-wing. Even the elite law schools are very left-wing, too. All of them. Law school has become a left-wing training ground. All my friends who go and come out tell me about this constantly when I ask them, hey, what was it like in law school? They say uh, law school is a completely progressive province now. You have very few legal professors uh, or law school professors, I should say, who are conservative. And, you know, you better go for a walkout when there's a Black Lives Matter protest. You better go walk out when Trump gets acquitted. All of these things are expected. If you're going to be at law school, you're going to be a law school student. So that's how they do this. That's how this that's how this goes. Um, it's not surprising in that in that respect that. The legal system is now so skewed against Republicans, but let's all just remember that that's what's happening. And they sent, what was it, a few dozen armed agents into Roger Stone's house at five o'clock in the morning. What an embarrassment for the law enforcement officials in charge. What an embarrassment for the FBI. And they should be ashamed of that. It was so stupid. So ridiculous. And now they're seven to nine years in prison. Trump, President Trump, if you are listening... Pardon him. Pardon him. Full pardon for Roger Stone. Go for it. Pardon General Flynn, too, while you're at it. The libs have to learn. The, we're wartime conservatives. The only way they're going to learn is if we crush their evil plans to destroy people for no good reason. No more, oh, it's officiousness or, well, they, they committed some kind of a process crime while we were trying to destroy their life using the process as a weapon against them. No, no, no more of that. Pardon Flynn. Pardon Stone, watch Libs cry now until the day that you get reelected, and then they'll cry even more. Just, just take that action. I mean, the president should do it. It'll be a, it'll be a fun day when he does too, because they'll all lose their minds. Oh, rush! There was no Russia collusion, you maniacs. Libs need to just get a grip, and they have to, they have to just keep being forced to face the reality. And the only way they will face that reality is if they lose and lose and lose some more. Essentially, until we get tired of winning. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Sanctuary cities are lawlessness. Let's just all remember this. Let's not let's not let them try to wipe this away or pretend that it's something else. Sanctuary cities are a form of lawlessness and the attorney general of the United States Barr has decided that they're going to start looking more and more into what exactly is going on with these sanctuary cities New York where I'm currently doing this show is a sanctuary city California is really a sanctuary state and there are consequences 
consequences from this left-wing embrace of lawlessness under the guise of human compassion when it's really first and foremost about power. How do libs get power? Well, sanctuary cities lead to an increase in uh, support among particularly the Latino community. Democrats need the Latino community to come out big to vote for them in order to control states, in order to control the whole national election, perhaps, this, uh, this fall. But one of the important arguments that Attorney General Bill Barr makes around sanctuary cities and why he's now directing the Department of Justice to begin to uh, confront this problem is that the sanctuary city issue is really about criminal illegal aliens, meaning people that are committing crimes in addition to the criminality of their illegal status. You know, I, I have yet to spend any time, you know, knock on wood, but I have yet to spend any time in a this is knocking on wood kind of ridiculous. I shouldn't even say that in a jail cell. Um, and I'm sure many of you listening also can say the same thing. I, I have not been arrested, gotten a speeding ticket. One, I'm still very, very annoyed about it. It's a long time ago, but I've never actually been arrested for a crime. Uh, there are lots and lots of, you know, millions and millions and millions of Americans. And there are many, many, many illegal aliens who have also never been never been uh, picked up for a criminal violation and held in a in a cell. And so I just would like to point out that what the attorney general is saying here is if you get arrested in addition to being an illegal alien, because you've probably broken the law, you've done something bad, and in some cases done something very, very bad, and he is now having the Department of Justice publish information about how there are different sanctuary jurisdictions. New York uh, is a very good example of one, Los Angeles another, where someone will be arrested. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, will say, hey, can we can we ask you to just hold on to that person? We're sending agents to go pick them up. You've already arrested them for a crime, but forget about the, the whole criminal proceeding that you're going to involve yourself in right now where, you know, all this. We want to deport this person. This person needs to be deported, needs to be sent out of the United States. So uh, they will not hold on to people in that circumstance. Uh, they will let them go. And in some cases, that decision to let that individual that Immigration and Customs Enforcement wants, uh, to that, that in some cases, the person being let go results in someone else getting killed. Some of the suspects have gone on to do terrible things. One case, the attorney general cites in a in a public statement from the DOJ about this, the guy went on to rape and murder a 92-year-old woman after, this was here in New York City, after Immigration and Customs Enforcement said, hey, hold on to that guy. He's a public safety risk and we want to deport him. And, you know, New York law enforcement was told, nope, sorry, can't hold him. Politicians make that decision. Uh, there are laws in the books right now, and this is where I think this could get very contentious. There are federal laws about aiding and abetting illegal aliens. Some of these states and localities may very well be in violation of that. And that is a duly enacted federal congressional statute. So this is why looking into this and the realities of the uh, refusal to even share information. I mean, the detainer request is one thing. Some some places now won't even tell Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. They won't even tell federal law enforcement, hey, we have someone here who you want for a lawful purpose, you want you want custody of this individual. They won't even pass along that information. It sounds kind of like aiding and abetting to me. 
sounds like they're trying to make it harder for federal law enforcement to do their job. In no other area of the law would we think this is normal or would this be tolerated even for a second. Right? There, there's no other area of law where if the federal government said, hey, you know, you guys, you guys have that person. We want him on, you know, federal child trafficking charges. Can you can you hold on to him for a second? The locality say, hey, you know, we don't want to uh, we don't want to get involved in that federal stuff. We're just going to let him go. But that's the way it works in Los Angeles and New York City and in the other sanctuary jurisdictions, which is basically every every major coastal city and every major Democrat city in the center of the country or, you know, in between the coasts, they are effectively a sanctuary jurisdiction. And there should be there should be consequences for this. And at least one consequence should be that people uh, should be allowed to understand what the real ramifications of this are and what it really means going forward. Uh, that there are going to be these decisions by politicians to refuse to help federal law enforcement and refuse to enforce the law. What does that turn into for people? What are the what are the real long term consequences of that? And that there are human costs. You know, the, the libs love that. We always hear the weepy eyed story of the illegal alien who's like a valedictorian who's cured cancer and is supporting like eight relatives by working 15 hours a day and all this stuff. But then the moment you say, OK, well, what about the MS-13 gangster who never should have been in the country in the first place and is wanted for like two rapes and a murder? But, you know, the uh, county of Los Angeles doesn't want to hold him in custody. So they let him go. And, oh, he just killed somebody else. Is that person's family allowed to be upset? Should that person's family be allowed to sue Los Angeles County? This problem of sanctuary jurisdictions is a very big one. And it's one that Trump administration is absolutely right to confront to deal with. And if nothing else, it'll get us closer to knowing the truth about what's really happening. Immigration, in terms of media coverage, is one of the areas that you have the most just just egregious and widespread lying. So it is up to people who are willing to tell truths that the libs don't want to hear about what sanctuary jurisdictions really mean. So, you know, bra- bravo to Barr and to the Trump administration for tackling this and for making it a priority. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Tesla is an electric car maker, guys, that I, I haven't spoken to you about on the show recently. And there's an interesting story going on right now because people have been saying, oh, it's in a lot of trouble. Elon Musk is not the wizard people thought he was. Uh, and that's in opposition to the stock price, which seems to be doing very well. I want to bring an old friend of mine who actually knows about this and follows it day in and day out, hedge fund manager uh, Whitney Tilson, who's the founder of Empire Financial Research. Whitney, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Uh, so tell me, what is going on right What do people need to know about, about Tesla right now in the American marketplace? Well, look, the honest truth is, is you don't have to be an expert on Tesla. You don't have to have an opinion on the stock. Everyone's sort of trying to be a hero here, both on the long and the short side. And the longs have certainly been getting the better uh, of it uh, since last June. The stock has roughly quadrupled. it's now um, got $139 billion market cap, good enough for the top 50 of largest market caps of all publicly traded companies in the United States. Uh, and it's driven by investor enthusiasm over the coming of electric vehicles, uh, which bulls believe, and I happen to believe, are the future. Um, but uh, And Tesla's sort of the only way to play it uh, as, as a pure play. So you, it's now become the most popular stock 
stock by far among day traders and so forth. Everybody wants to own the stock and own a piece of the future, and it's really run the stock up through the roof. Now, what happens, though, when, when isn't Tesla already competing with an increasingly crowded market of uh, you know, BMW, General Motors, and all, all the major car makers are putting out uh, uh, bigger lines of electric vehicles, right? So how can Tesla compete with that? Well, so far, they've just been competing by producing great cars. Uh, they've been uh, a market leader um, going you know, way back almost a decade now to the debut of the Model S. Um, and they make great cars. And I would say that their cars right now um, are better across the board uh, than anyone else. But every major auto manufacturer in the world has been investing cumulatively tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars to catch up with Tesla here. And they, roughly speaking, um, are approximately 200 new electric car models uh, are coming out acro across the world by every major auto manufacturer in the next three years, by my latest count. And not, not one of them has to be the Tesla killer. If, if these collectively just get 1% of the electric car market each, um, you know, you can do the math. Um, and Tesla's, you know, currently dominant position, you know, they're selling something like 80% of the electric uh, cars sold in the United States in the last year. Um, that could be whittled away. And keep in mind, they're competing against companies that have very strong cash flows from their existing gas-powered pow car businesses, and all um, that will have higher subsidies that have largely gone away for Tesla now. And so it could sort of be a bloodbath. So that's sort of the bear case that even if Tesla um, is a leader, well, MySpace was a leader and Friendster was a leader. And look what happened when uh, Facebook came along. And uh, you, the, the technological world is filled with early movers uh, who then um, whose stock price often goes through the roof based on investor enthusiasm about things like social media and the internet and web browsers and you know something like the Palm Pilot, and uh, but investors often have a very rude awakening when a deluge of competition emerges. Now, how much of this, in in your estimation, is driven by a a Steve Jobs like? cult or, or belief in, I mean, cult might sound pejorative, but, but belief in just Elon Musk as the wizard behind all of this? Uh, I think that's a good part of it. Uh, one of the biggest risks for Tesla stock is if something could, should happen to Elon Musk, um, you know, he's, he's sort of, um, I call him a mad genius. Uh, he sort of lies pathologically. Uh, he, he's never hit a deadline that he's met. I mean, he predicted something six months ago that all Teslas would be fully level five autonomous and anyone who owned a Tesla could have it be a robo taxi. Um, and that's something that I believe is actually happening very rapidly. It might, uh, this vision might become reality within five years, in my view, which is much faster than the consensus view, which is 10 years or more. But Elon Musk was out there promising this would happen within a year, uh, which is insane. It can't possibly happen. So, uh, but he really is a visionary, and anyone who's bet against 
against him uh, has ended up being sorry for it. Um, he, you know, he works 20 hours a day and he expects all of his people to work at least 18 hours a day. And he attracts some of the most brilliant engineers uh, in the world whose alternative might be working for General Motors. Well, you can imagine where the talent's going to go. And they have really pulled off some pretty spectacular engineering uh, feats. So um, it's way too richly valued and it's really become almost like a trading stock uh, that you know, as a value guy like me, you know, it's hard to make sense of the valuation. On the other hand, uh, so, so I don't want to, uh, I don't want to go long it, but on the other hand, some um, shorting Tesla, uh, a very open-ended situation that's disrupting some of the largest uh, industries in the world, the automotive industry, the energy industry. Um, What's and, the, can you just speak to the energy piece of that real quick, uh, Whitney? How is it disrupting? Is that just the battery, the, the battery technology? Well, there are two elements of it. One is, is if electric cars, if we are in the very early stages of a transition to an all-electric car world, say, over the next 10 years, um, that will have enormous, uh, an enormous impact on the demand for oil and, and on everything that flows from that, from the oil majors to all their suppliers to things like gas stations, right? Um, but also then Tesla is in the battery storage business uh, separately from making automobiles. And again, it's unclear how much traction they're going to get and how many people are really going to have batteries hanging in their homes and what municipalities are going to do, et cetera. Um, but again, a multi-trillion dollar industry where... Uh, you know, I'm hesitant to I, I, I'm hesitant to bet against Tesla. Um, they've they've seemingly pulled a lot of rabbits out of a lot of hats over the years, and that's a real credit to Elon Musk and his team. Whitney Tilson, everybody, founder of Empire Financial Research. Whitney, where can people go to read more of your work? Um, if you just go to empirefinancialresearch.com, you can uh, read about our newsletters. And also, I do a free daily uh, email newsletter that goes out every day with my latest thoughts on Tesla, other stocks of interest, um, general commentary, and so forth. All right. Whitney, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Yeah, guys, I, I like to tell you stories that don't necessarily get a lot of tr a lot of uh, play in conservative media. I think the Tesla story is fascinating. I mean, is Tesla the new Apple? I mean, is it is it world changing? I mean, that's that's something we'll have to revisit and spend more time on. But I know Whitney's been doing a lot of research on it, so I wanted you to hear from him. And with that, we'll get to roll call. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. It's time for Roll Call. Are right, we got Mark up? Not to be confused with producer Mark. Although if he starts sending in emails about himself and how awesome he is, I got eyes on him. I recently started listening to your podcast and I have to say you're both entertaining and insightful. I live on the left coast in every sense of that reference, specifically Santa Clarita in California. It is a small red dot in a sea of blue, but we have the distinction of being the group of collective morons who elected Katie Hill. My thought is regarding your ongoing criticism of the climate change movement and more specifically Greta Thunberg. You've been accused of attacking her, which is a laughable assertion. Why don't you do a search, either local or nationally, for a young person under 18 to openly debate Greta and her knowledge of the climate emergency? I'm sure there are any number of well-educated conservative young people who would love a chance to debate these issues with her and test her actual knowledge of anything, and the disingenuous argument that she is being bashed by an adult would be thwarted. 
I think it would be an opportunity for conservative young people to have their thoughts, voices heard regarding an issue the left is completely dishonest about. Shields high. Well, Mark, it's an interesting idea. I don't really have the time to do that myself, but uh, I do thank you for writing in. Um, I don't think we could do like a nationwide talent search for somebody to debate Greta Thunberg. I don't think it'd be very hard to find a young person. I think she's 17 or 18 now, too. She's not that young. Um, but it is it is just one of the areas of such – it's preposterous that adults think that they should listen to this teenage Swedish girl about this issue. It's just – or is she – yeah, she's Swedish, right? Whatever. Close enough. Kelly. I'm sorry, but did no one call you out for saying you put hazelnut milk, a.k.a. nut juice, in your Black Rifle coffee? I thought you hated all of the nut juices. Uh, well, Kelly, um, you got me on this one. I do like hazelnut milk. I like the taste of hazelnuts, and I'm trying to cut down a little bit. I like dairy when it comes to cheese, and I can't give up cheese. But I, I feel like my digestion has been a little off in recent months, and I'm trying to cut down a little bit on dairy. So I have been I have been cheating on my cow milk with some of the various nut milks. I tried walnut milk. I don't like it. Um, I do like hazelnut milk a lot, and I like almond milk too. So that's what I've got for you. But Kelly, you're you're correct. TJ Buck. You brought up a great point on Friday's episode about Cruz, Lee, and McConnell circling the wagons during and even before impeachment. I think this is a distinct difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. Since we're on the right, we're so used to being under fire, we make sure to do our homework on the issues before going into battle. I feel the Dems, on the other hand, have had it pretty easy when everything just usually works out for them, and they've never really needed a plan. However, these past four years have been a rude awakening for them, and now they have no plan. Nothing demonstrates this better than their recently failed impeachment attempt. While most reasonable people would have learned their lesson by now, something tells me this is not the last of their shenanigans. TJ, it's definitely not the last of their shenanigans. Um, they will, in my mind, there's there's no question that they will uh, try some other Trump removal effort. That's what's going to end up happening. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's another special counsel or if it's another impeachment or if it's trying to like get some people to make a 25th Amendment claim or something. I, I don't know, but they're going to try to remove this this president because they're terrified of the now increasingly likely prospect that the president's going to win re-election. Stephen, hey, Buck, I do have a comment on the public versus private versus charter school conversation that was uh, going on in yesterday's podcast. My wife teaches at a parochial school, and I can attest that teachers at some private schools are paid sometimes a quarter to half of what their public school counterparts are paid. Also, if you consider that people who choose to send their kids to private school are essentially paying twice for education, the school district is getting the benefit of getting my taxes and not having to provide the services to my children. Shields high. Yeah, Stephen, that's true. It's not like if you go to private school, you can opt out. Um, that's that you're you're paying those property taxes regardless of where you send your kid to school. So that is true. Good point. Jeremy Buck, a great state rivalry in the Midwest feud is of Indiana and Illinois. Indiana, in general, embraces conservative policies that make the state work, while Illinois embraces progressive policies. One state is thriving and is a great place to live. The other is a bankrupt progressive wasteland with a prison full of their politicians. Ooh, someone's throwing down on the great Indiana-Illinois feud here. Uh, so, yeah, man, Shields High. I did not know that Indiana and Illinois, Illinois were in a struggle for supremacy. 
I'm sure like I'm, Washington and Oregon got to be in some kind of a fight, right? I mean, there must be some other states that I mean, the great the great one is New York and New Jersey and Texas and Oklahoma. I know, although Texas always says, come on, Oklahoma, that's like that's like putting the uh, a high school team up against the pros. What do you guys say? I feel like Florida and Georgia have a little bit Florida of Florida and Georgia got a little yeah. beef. Maybe northern Florida and Georgia have got a little bit sure. of rivalry going on. There's like on. two Floridas. There's the sixth borough of New York and then there's North Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Different yeah. different situation. I, I think that's probably fair. Uh, you know, Delaware and Maryland, they're like, oh, what's up? Who who state is more blah? Delaware or Maryland? I'm just kidding. We got great. I'm just I love you. I love you, Maryland. WCBM Baltimore, you're fantastic. Um just, just like to poke, a, just like to poke a little fun, poke a little fun at the states. I love New Jersey too. Here, Buck, lose us some more listeners. What other states do you yeah. not like? No, no, just kidding. I love all the states. Uh-huh. I love all the states. Um, except we don't have a station in Rhode Island, do we? Is Rhode Island big enough for a radio? station? I don't station? even know. It probably yeah. just has radio stations from other states. So I was sure. going to talk some Rhode Island smack just because it's safe. But no, we probably have some great Team Buck listeners. In I'm Rhode sure Island. we do. We have great yeah. Team Buck listeners in everywhere. every state. We have we, we have in other countries. Yeah, which is pretty awesome. Um, Marina, two things that I think could help are national elections. One, each state should count each electorate instead of having all their electorates go to the majority of that state. Two, no election results reporting until all polls in Hawaii are closed. Sure, there'll be leaguers because some people stink, but possible leaguers will be shamed. Yes, I'm an optimist. Um, huh. All right, Marina. Interesting ideas. Mark. Hey, Buck, I think the environmentally conscious left would have switched from jet-setting to horse and carriage on the campaign trail, but they're probably worried about those highly polluting horse farts. Cow farts, I think, are even worse, but horse farts probably also, from what I understand, no good for the environment. Maybe they should install a nationwide network of zip lines. Wouldn't that be a sight? Bernie, Biden, Bloomberg, Buttigieg, Warren screaming through the sky on their carbon-free cable system. Love the show, Shields High. Mark, your... Uh, your witty sarcasm is noted. Buck, what would uh, Bernie Sanders sound like on a zipline? Whoa! Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's fast. See, sometimes I play along. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Uh, Aaron. Hey, Buck, I'm immediately to write you about your mouth-watering tale of eating steak. My husband is Hindu, so by default, I never get to eat anything with beef. Whenever you mention steak, I think back to my brother's wedding reception at Keene's in New York City, where I had the most unbelievably delicious piece of prime I've ever had. It literally melted in my mouth. It was so good. I remember having to fight off my mother. She tried stealing portions of my meal. She shouldn't have ordered the fish. So although that was 15 years ago, I still have vivid memories of that glorious dish. I agree with you about Keene's and highly recommend it to anyone in Team Buck if it's New York City. Yeah, it's a fantastic steakhouse. I mean, it really is. Um, That's... When when producer Mark and I have something super exciting to celebrate, we'll we'll go out to uh, to Keene Steakhouse. Do you have a favorite New York City Steakhouse? I didn't even ask you this. I don't. I don't really go out. Do to you have steakhouses. a favorite steakhouse? Period. Are you not really a steakhouse guy? I, I'm very cheap, Buck. And steakhouses <laughs> are expensive. They're very expensive. Exactly. They really you know what they really get you on to the steakhouses, but they really get you on the sides. Yeah. Because you you end up getting three or four sides. A lot of these steakhouses, the sides are like eighteen bucks, which is basically twenty bucks. So you get three or four sides. You're spending a hundred dollars on sides. And I'm the type of person where, like, if you go out to a steakhouse with somebody else, I'm not going to order the big steak if somebody else is paying. I'm uh, that type of guy. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Producer Mark. Frugal. Mm. Frugal Mark in the penalty box. Doesn't want doesn't to waste, waste all the cash. I get it. Makes sense. 
Plus, the truth is there, there are cuts of steak that are less expensive that taste just as good. So that's going to be the show today, my friends. It is fantastic. If you get a chance, tune in on WOR tonight, 6 to 9, 710 WOR in the New York City area. Also, check us out on Channel 248, Pluto TV, the first. If you want to watch this show, remember, this show continues as is. The Pluto stream continues as is. We're just adding a fourth hour. We will talk to you tomorrow. Shields high.